Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Panslow, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 3 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. The theme of Season 3 is the road to Doha. We will be exploring issues relevant to the LDCs ahead of the FIT UN conference on the least developed countries in Doha, Qatar in 2022. Today, we go back to the Pacific to speak with Jody Smith of Matanataki, a Fiji-based private sector partnership of business developers, finance experts, conservationists, and creatives who support the development of green and blue businesses and Fiji and the Pacific. Jody, it's really a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Please tell us about your background. Where are you from? What did you study? And what led you to your current post? I consider myself as a person from everywhere. So I actually hold three citizenships and a permanent residency in a fourth country. So I'm pretty global, but I was born in New Zealand to a father from New Zealand and a mother from Fiji. I grew up in New Zealand. I studied in New Zealand and in the United Kingdom. What did I study? So my first degree was actually in linguistics, which is completely unrelated to do with what I do now. I actually majored in transformational grammar. So Noam Chomsky was really one of my heroes when I was studying. And I did a minor in film production. And then from there, I actually went into the film industry. So I've worked on and off in the film industry for 25 years, but I actually decided to go back to school in my late 20s and do a second degree, which I unfortunately didn't complete due to financial reasons. But my second degree was actually in in fine art, and I studied at uh, University College London at the Slade School of Fine Art. What led me to my current work? So I actually come from a very long line of entrepreneurs. In fact, I trace my entrepreneurial background on my father's side to a group of Huguenots from France who were early settlers in New Zealand who were in the textile trade. On my mother's side to my great-great-grandfather who was the first Chinese man in Fiji and he set up the first general store and did a lot of trading throughout the Fiji Islands. And my family, so my parents, my brother, we're all entrepreneurs. So it's hard to link my my kind of linguistics, fine art, film background to what I'm doing now, but really through, mostly through my family, I was exposed to a lot of business development and business turnaround work. And really for the last 12 years, that's what I've been working on. It's a much longer story than what I'm telling, but that's essentially the cliff notes. Well, that's fascinating, Jody. Here at UNCF, we love people with non-traditional backgrounds. My team here at the Partnerships Policy and Communications Division has people who studied fine art, acting. We have a professionally trained opera singer. My master's degree is in theater directing. So we have uh, a lot of people who development from other perspectives. And I found it to be actually very helpful because you're trained to think in a different way. So as we move into kind of innovative finance and financial structuring, you meet a lot of people who went to business school. They all look Mm -hmm. at a problem and they break it down in the same fashion and look at it the same way. But we Mm -hmm. find that people with different backgrounds look at the problem differently. So this diversity of opinion and training and ways of looking and thought 
is as important as diversity of nationality or Mm -hmm. ethnicity or any other kind that we talk about. So thank you for sharing your background. I just have to mention that one of the movies that you worked on was The Matrix. Mm -hmm. And you are in New Zealand where the film industry is such an important part of the economy. What was that like? Oh, it was an amazing experience. I think at the time we we had really no idea what we were making. I think a lot of the crew only felt the impact of that movie when we sat down for the first cast and crew screening. And it was like, oh my goodness, we worked on that. I think where my film background has prepared me for what I'm doing now is that film, I think, is one of the most collaborative industries that I've certainly worked in. And what you have in film is is people doing quite different things at a very high level um, of expertise and all of them are working together for one common goal and that is when the assistant director or the director calls action and all of your work has to coalesce into this very short moment and, and you do this over and over and over again. So I've really been able to apply that mode of working to what I do now. And just to speak to your point before about that diversity of of background, I think often in my most recent career, which is now about 12 years old, I have often lamented, oh, I didn't go to this business school or I didn't get educated at that university. But what I've come to value, and, and one of my business mentors has really helped me see this, is that I am able to come to business problems with a really fresh set of eyes and try to find answers in ways that aren't typical. So I think it's really added a lot of value to what I do. Absolutely. And I think even the study of linguistics, that's how people communicate right? Like economics is a study of markets. How do you structure things like trade between humans? So I think the idea of saying you spent your kind of early career studying how it is that people use language to communicate with each other is so critical. That's relevant to everything we do. So I'm a big fan of liberal arts education, as you can probably tell. Please tell us about Matanataki. So Matanataki was formed three years ago. We were brought together by a man called Paul Chatterton, and Paul runs an NGO called the Landscape Finance Lab. So what Paul looked at was the last 30 years of conservation, and he said to himself that we know that conservation and protection is really important, but we also know that we're losing the battle here. We know that things are getting worse in terms of human impact on the environment. So we need to do things differently. And and he saw this need to connect conservation and protection with the private sector because most of the degradation is really being driven by industry and by the people behind it. So he had this idea of let's bring the two together. So I like to say that Paul built the playground and invited us to come and play. And the four partners of Matanataki, Paul, myself, Anton Gigop, and Peter Scheut, we each have our different specializations. So for Paul, it's really looking at the landscape vision. So what are the threats that are affecting the lands? Really being able to quantify those and then look at the industries behind them. And if those industries were able to receive the right size of investment, how could they shift the way that they do business? And what would the cost of that be? What would the cost of the investment be? And then what would the return be? So he quantifies that at a very kind of high 50,000 foot level. Then I come in and I'm the one who's on the ground 
meeting the entrepreneurs, talking to them, finding out how can they reimagine their business to deliver on these impacts. Then Anton, he is our finance expert. He's the one who does all of the structuring, speaks the language of the investors. And then Peter specializes in incubating businesses in low-income economies. I can give a local context of that, but Peter's been doing it for a lot longer than me. And one of the key reasons for bringing on Peter is we saw that the biggest bottleneck to actually delivering successful long-term businesses was actually addressing this lack of capacity in terms of entrepreneurship skill in Fiji. So that's us. And the reason I was asked to be involved was I was here on the ground. And when Paul came to do this landscape visioning exercise, he needed someone in the private sector and I happened to be the only person on the steering committee for WWF Pacific for their great sea reef resilience program. So it was like, right, you're the one, come on, we're going to do this together. Fantastic. So tell us what types of businesses you guys are looking for, what ticket size you're making, like, please walk us through, say a model deal or structure. How would Matanataki's interventions work? Sure. Well, the three threats that were identified through this work that the lab did with WWF Pacific were waste and pollution, overfishing, and ecosystem destruction. And the ecosystem destruction is largely being driven on land. It's generally agricultural or it's forestry or, or both. So we knew that we had to focus on those sectors. The lowest hanging fruit in terms of businesses that could give environmental returns, but also businesses who had uh, entrepreneurs at the helm who really could just run their business without too much involvement from us was in waste. So we focused on waste and our first three investments are in organic upcycling. So we have a non-synthetic fertilizer company using waste, which is currently going into landfill and into dump sites. We also have a plastics recycling company. And then we have a large scale landfill and materials recovery facility projects. The next kind of key sectors for us, fisheries is really important. So we've got a number of aquaculture businesses in the pipeline and mariculture. So agriculture is really a big elephant in the room. We know that any intervention in the sea, so for example, setting up an MPA or coral restoration, we know that it won't be successful until we actually deal with those land-based threats. And to give you an example on that, we have a very big sugarcane industry here. So the sugarcane uses chemical inputs, so MPK and urea. When those nitrates run off into our waterways, we have outbreaks of crown of thorns starfish. And the science behind that is out of this world. I won't go into detail here, but it's crazy how the larvae can just clone in the presence of nitrates. That leads to crown of thorns outbreaks. That leads to massive destruction. Each crown of thorns starfish can eat, I think it's one cubic meters of coral in three days. So unless we're dealing with these land-based threats, we cannot have successful coral restoration, for example. But the issue that we have with agriculture, and particularly with sugar, is that it's quite politicised. A quarter of the country is indirectly or directly linked to the sugar industry, receives benefits from it. Also, what we see from the last 30 years of exporters who typically aren't from here, they're usually foreigners who've come and set up a business, they've set up a competitive mechanism whereby farmers actually aren't aggregating, they're not talking to each other, it's very competitive. So there's actually a lot of systemic work that needs to be done in agriculture to address these problems. And we're not quite there yet, we're still quite small as an organisation 
So we need to build to that point. So really right now we're focusing on waste and plastic management and we're focusing on fisheries, so mariculture, aquaculture. And we see that there are complementary sectors to those first three, which are critical as well, but we have less deals in those. So renewable energy is one. Now the reason I bring up renewable energy, it's not as direct. And it's like, okay, what does that have to do with, with oceans? What does that have to do with the reef? One of the things that keeps coming up when I speak to entrepreneurs is, yeah, we would do more, but we can't afford the cost of the energy. And also we have a massive fuel and diesel import bill. So it's something, again, that needs to be addressed. And and we also see a lot of investment available for these larger infrastructure energy projects. Tourism is a big one. We see tourism being a very big driver of coastal degradation. And there's some really exciting sustainable carbon neutral projects happening in Fiji right now. And then the third of our three complementary sectors is low carbon transport. And we have one project in that space. Thank you so much, Jody, for walking us through that. I think that's fascinating to hear about that chain of fertilizer use in the sugarcane going into the ocean, the impact on the coral. So you do really need a systemic solution. We know the government of Fiji has been very active and engaged in pushing policies to support green and blue investment products. What kind of investments are you making for the companies in your portfolio? Are these debt investments? Are they equity? What's the ticket size? Are you raising a fund to invest in them? Please walk us through that structure. Sure. Right now, Matanataki is focusing on doing direct investments into the companies. Matanataki has a very small ability to make its own equity investments. So depending on how we co-create a business with the entrepreneurs, we may make an equity investment ourselves. But generally, we're facilitating direct investments into businesses. We're always preferring debt. Debt's usually a lot cheaper. And then in terms of equity, exits are quite difficult here. And so what we really want to do is build the businesses to a point where if there is an exit needed, so if there's an equity investment and the investor is looking to sell, that we can actually sell to a local, say, pension fund. Because ideally, I think that the longer term vision is we want to build up manufacturing capacity in country. And then we want those assets really to be owned by the people for the people. So that's pretty key. We are looking at developing two funds. And the reason why is in response to what we hear increasingly from investors, which is your typical ticket sizes in Fiji are small. They're too small for us. The cost of the transaction is going to be too high. Have you got an aggregation mechanism? Can you guys run it? So we're bringing in that expertise now and we want to be setting up two funds, which essentially will be to make investments into our portfolio. One sort of 75 million to 100 million US dollar fund, which will be for ticket sizes between about 500,000 US and 5 million US. And then a smaller little sister facility, which will be a purely grant-based mechanism. And that's to support the very high-risk businesses, which are in the supply chain of those businesses that would receive an investment from the big sister fund. And to give an example, we could look at a turmeric and ginger exporting business that would receive an investment from our big sister fund. And uh, a company, just to give an example, that sort of company would be exporting, say, a biodiverse organic certified juice, be wanting to grow into a company that makes a high-end extracts and oleo resins. 
from the little sister fund, they would need their supply chain made more secure. So their farmer groups, formalized, aggregated, cooperative set up for those community groups, certifications for those groups. And that way we have the two funds that are able to deliver that. That's fantastic, Jody. And that spectrum of support is very familiar to UNCDF because we know that in these markets, the grant and the technical assistance piece is quite critical to make the investment viable. How are you planning to raise the grant piece? Will you then go to different audiences to raise the grant making mechanism versus the income producing fund? Yes, we are. So we're going to the traditional grant makers and donors. And we're putting the investment case to them. We're also speaking to development banks about that as well. So looking in Fiji at the potential of local development banks being the repository and maybe through the process in a second or third iteration of a similar fund actually managing that fund. And $100 million is pretty sizable. Will you use that all in Fiji? Is the pipeline big enough or do you envision this as a pan-Pacific type fund? It would be for Fiji at this point. So we've screened over 150 businesses in Fiji. The capital need of these businesses is over 250 million US. Of that 150, we have a shorter list of 40, which we feel will be able to give the financial returns and the environmental impact. And and this is where we get our 75 to 100 million dollar figure from. In terms of Pan Pacific, we've been having conversations about replicating what we do in other countries. We're holding off on that right now because we really want to focus on Fiji and get it right and make sure that the model works here first and then be able to deliver regionally. Absolutely. And we know that in these types of very labor-intensive nurturing models, you need to be in the country. You can't fly in from somewhere else and try to do the work that the on the ground knowledge, the expertise, the connections are so critical to making that work. So it makes sense that you would focus on Fiji. I think this is a great example for our international investors who are always saying, where's the pipeline? There is pipeline, even in very small countries, if you have the skills, the capacity to develop it, to source it, to originate it and nurture it to a point where it's investable. So that's fantastic proof of that fact. So we know Jody, that the Pacific Islands are some of the most vulnerable to climate change impacts, and Fiji has had more than its share of devastating hurricanes and storms. How do you think Matanataki's model addresses climate change for Fiji? This is a little controversial, what I'm going to say. I actually believe that Matanataki's model addresses environmental impact, so rather than climate impact. I think the argument that we have in front of us is we have these global threats, And the global threats, we're looking at temperature rise, ocean acidification, these increasing extreme weather events. Fiji on its own can't actually fight that. But what we have in Fiji is a reef system. So the Great Sea Reef, which runs the top of Fiji's two largest islands down to the west, I think it's the third longest barrier reef in the world. So it is actually considered a low exposure reef. It's one of the most resilient reefs in the world. Now, one of the reefs most likely to survive a two-degree warming scenario, but if we don't address local threats, it actually, it won't survive. 
So for me, our work is actually about addressing local threats rather than global threats. And I think you'll hear our Fijian leaders on the global stage saying something quite similar. You know, there's not a lot Fiji on its own can do about global threats. I mean, we're not responsible for big emissions and things like that. But what we can do is take responsibility for our local threats and we can lead that way. And I think, you know, the work that we're doing here with our partners is evidence of that. That's a wonderful example, Jody, of this attitude of saying, what are the problems I can solve myself, right? We know that at least developed countries and lower income countries and small island developing states and Pacific islands are disproportionately and most unfairly affected by climate change that they didn't do anything to cause and then they're dealing with the impacts every day. So I think in the wider discussions in the lead up to COP or these other big climate issues, that's a fact that's underlying all the big statements is that the ones who are causing the climate change are not paying the price for the impacts of the climate change. And then the reluctance of wealthy countries or developing nations to address climate impacts are hurting the people who have done the least to cause the climate impacts. It's really lovely to hear this very pragmatic, focused attitude to say, we didn't cause it, we're not going to be able to solve the problem, but here are things that we can do right in our backyard. So, Jody, how can international investors support you and your work in Fiji? The first thing is to recognize the value of having people on the ground to develop businesses and that there's a pretty key role that we play to A, build trust on the part of the investors, but then also to deliver the ongoing support that's needed to make sure that these businesses are viable. I think the model that we're used to in the investment world is that an investor can come and and put an investment into a business and then they kind of go, hands off, we're going to come and check on you once a year, have our board meetings once or twice a year, but the entrepreneur is just going to run it. Now, that's not really possible. We we see with the work we've done with our first three investments that we actually need to be very hands-on with the entrepreneurs. Often because what's being introduced as the solution for the growth to deliver the outcome is something that these businesses haven't done before. So I think to be more concessional or for some, some it doesn't necessarily need to be the investors. The issue with the Global Fund for Coral Reefs, I think is really interesting as a fund is that they have these three different windows. One is purely grant, one is very concessional, and then you've got your equity investment window. And I think that kind of structure really works because I feel quite strongly, and of course I'm biased, but it is based on my experience that people like Matanataki really are needed to A, get the pipeline in front of the investors, but then to give ongoing support to those businesses to make sure that the returns are achieved. We would agree. And we've heard this lament from investors that there's no pipeline. There is pipeline, but we need people to nurture it. And it's not free and it's not fast. And those businesses are not going to be investable by commercial entities by themselves. So that's where the grant money is so important. And that's where the work that you guys are doing is so important as well. So Jody, as we look to wrap up, if there was one thing you could do to accelerate the growth of the kind of approach that Matanataki is taking and accelerate the impact that it has in Fiji and other environments, what would it be? Probably more boots on the ground. A bottleneck for me is the number of hours in the day working between continents and I'd love more of me here, which is coming. So I I have one of my partners joining me here on the ground in a few months' time. 
That's really the key thing. And then, of course, the funding to do that. Matanataki is moving its business model towards being less focused on reliance on ground and being more focused on a management fee type of structure. So moving towards that as quickly as we can, I think is important because one of the things that is very time consuming is grant applications, reporting on the grants, and we'd love to just be able to go, right, we're just going to do the work and we're going to get on with it. So I think, yeah, that's pretty key. And we agree that the sooner you get to a sustainable model, the sooner everything keeps running, right? That part of the goal of UNCDF's interventions in these areas is to get companies to the point where they don't need any public sector support anymore, right? That you use it as a focus tool in one certain part of the value chain or the spectrum of finance. And then after a company is healthy enough, they don't need you. And that's the goal. Thank you so much, Jody, for being with us and sharing your expertise and your rich background with our listeners for our podcast here at UNCDF. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you also to our audience for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter, hashtag Capital Musings, or leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews help new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks, and until next time.